A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new podcast called Why Would You Tell Me That? I'm Dave Moore. I am a radio host from Dublin in Ireland, and I'm joined by Neil Delamere. Uh, I could go on for days about Neil's many accolades, but I'll let him introduce himself. <laughs> I am Neil Delamere. I am a man from Offaly, but I also do a bit of comedy as well. And I'm very excited about talking to my friend Dave about our new podcast. Yeah, look, we've tried for ages to work together on something and we've done little bits and pieces. They've gone very well. And then eventually we decided to put ourselves through the torture of creating a podcast together and to test our relationship to the max. Yes, but hopefully it'll go better than that. Failed sitcom pilot we wrote and that time that we decided to be a juggling double act where you insisted that I be one of the clubs that you juggled. Look, you're small enough. I'm big enough. It was supposed to work. We never got signed up by the circus. But here we are now. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do Why Would You Tell Me That? And the idea behind Why Would You Tell Me That? is pretty simple. Neil and I love a good fact. We love a good story and we love a good unknown fact because we're constantly trying to out fact each other. So we figured we'd create this podcast where each week one of us is going to know what's happening and the other person is going to have no clue. That's how we like it. Yeah, we're essentially, we're deeply tedious men and we find each other not tedious. So rather than depress our wives <laughs> into what can only be described as justifiable violent action, we've decided to tell each other random stuff and you, wherever you get your podcasts as well. The only criteria is that we find it interesting. Yeah. The thing about this is I've worked in radio for a long time. Neil's worked in comedy for a long time. There are some situations in which you create drama or you create mm. a situation that, that you know helps you get your point across. In this situation, genuinely, we are not telling each other what this what the second part of each episode is. So, in the because that would defeat the whole purpose of the one-upmanship. I could never win if I gave Neil the the information beforehand. It's not yeah. what I want to do. One of us is going to be prepared to talk to an expert in the second half and look great mm. and look well researched and oh. look professional, while the other one will be flailing around to some degree, but also. Uh, representing the audience because they haven't heard the fact either. So yeah. that's, what I, that's what I will console myself with when I don't know what the person <laughs> is talking about. Yeah, no, ideally what will happen is we will explain to all of us, so the other one of us and the rest of the listening world, something incredible about our world that we should know, but we probably don't. Yeah, and answer the question, why would you tell me that? Yeah. Because why would you tell me that is usually kind of, why would you tell me that? Whereas we wanted to be answered in a kind of, oh yeah, no, I can see why you would tell me that. Actually, an exercise you can do at home yourselves, guys. For your workbook is, that we will send out. Yeah. <laughs> is Why would you tell me that is a sentence that you can stress each of the words and have a completely different meaning. So in your own head, in your own time, start, start off and go, why would you tell me that? And then the next thing you can go, why would you tell me that? Why would, why would you tell you? me that? You see, uh, you see, it's already fun, guys. We're already having fun. <laughs> it's just the name of the podcast. There is no expert. It's just Dave <laughs> pronouncing different words in random sentences for an hour. Yeah. Well, strap yourselves in, guys. Uh, no, there is an expert. In fact, I hope there's an expert. I don't know because I'm not leading episode one. Neil Delamere, I'm in the dark. I'm with the audience. You are leading the episode one. Tell us what it's about. Who's our expert? What's going to happen? 
Well, later on, we are going to talk to Melissa Alardo, mm-hmm. a scientist who has studied the genetics of the Bajo people. And they're sea nomads. I'm not going to tell you too much about them, but they're sea nomads. They can die for an extraordinary amount of time. And she studied them to see if they are genetically different to people on the mainland. And she found out some very interesting results. One of the organs of their body is much bigger than the mainlanders. Oh, and it's not the one you think who were matron. Going, is that some kind of a snorkel? <laughs> There's some, some breathing apparatus I don't know about. Let's find out. Okay. Did you yeah. say they were called the bad joke people? Because in, in, in our country where we're from and people who listen to my radio show, they'll know the bad jokes. They're my currency. So if these are the bad joke tribe, like I, yes. I need to move in with them. <laughs> Her genetic studies found out that they were 100% Dave Moore related. <laughs> That's what they found. The Bajo, B-A-J-A-U. Ah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So for part one, I started looking at the lungs. And that's what we're talking about here, the world of the lungs. Yep. But I have two questions for you. Okay. One, how long can you hold your breath for? Okay. And two, what is the world record, in your estimation, for holding one's breath? Um, I think I'm very good at breathing out. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, <laughs> but... <laughs> But <laughs> I'm 50% of the way yeah, there. Yeah. I, that is exceptional. So I, I meditate a lot. And obviously meditation is a lot to do with your breath and, and bringing yourself back to your breathing or whatever. And I find mm. that when I'm in a deep state of relaxation, I mm. inhale relatively normally, I, I think. And then I just, I can just... I can just exhale for days. Now, I don't know if this is different than anybody else because I've never asked anybody before, but it's definitely something that I've noticed about myself that I appear to have an exhalation uh, exaggeration. (laughs) Do you know something that is... I I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people in in the arts, what people would Mm. consider to be kind of strange, bohemian-type jobs. And I'm without doubt, that is the single most useless skill I have ever heard. (laughs) Anybody admits it. Well, if I had to blow out a lot of birthday candles in a row because they were about to go up a net curtain, you would say, if look around the room to all the people that you know who have got useless skills and go, you know what, let's let Dave have this one. Let's not ring the fire brigade. You won't believe this, but I know a broadcaster who could handle the situation. Okay, so you're good at fifty percent. Okay, right? so I think I don't think I can hold breath for very long. I've never practiced it. It's not something I know. The the, the Dutch lad Wim Hof is a mad fella for the the breath holding and the cold water therapy and all that. I'm not one of those, so I I'd, I'd say I'm pretty average except for my exceptional um, exhalation. But then, in terms of how long the world record is, I mean, yeah, guess. Okay, so I know illusionist and magician Keith Barry has held his breath for at least a minute and a half. And I know that that may or may not have been an illusion. Um, So (laughs) I'm going to say, I'm going to go wild, double it and say almost three minutes, two minutes and 51 seconds. The current world breath record is 24 minutes, 37 seconds. No, it isn't. It is. No, it isn't. It is longer than an episode of The Simpsons. This is untrue that whoever did that had a tube up their hoop that was feeding their lungs that you didn't Ah, see. Ah, the old tube hoop theory. No. What? No, No, how? Sorry, hang on. If you, if I sit sit across your chest, Neil, as as we've done on many times, it's standard. Why would you tell me that? It's surprising how how badly you understand spooning. I mean, it took so many goals for you to understand it. That, yeah, you've ended up sitting on my chest. Okay, so I sit on your chest. I don't necessarily, you know, choke you, but I go to you, right, hold your breath, and I'm sitting on your chest. Like, you're, Mm. you're, 10, 15 seconds, you are punching me in the gut, going, get off me, get off me, get off me, because you can't breathe. Like, now, you you might be surprised to learn that that's not how Guinness actually tests <laughs> breath hold. It's a shame. This is this is true. It's 24 minutes. Uh, you'd never get COVID, would you? Not If a you breathe, breathed in once every 24 minutes, like you could just go to the cinema, no mask. How long is the Fast and the Furious 9? Two hours, right? Breath going in, pop to the loo a couple of times. <laughs> that's Fish incredible. Passport. And how do things that like we know happen when people stop breathing how do things like damage to organs and, you know, well, like all that? Oh, we're going to get to that. Let we? me explain. Okay. So the person who did this is a free diver, which is what you'd have to be, yes. obviously. Uh, or a fireman. I mean, you'd be a deadly fireman, <laughs> wouldn't you? All the rest of the lads are putting on the breathing apparatus. You're like, pussies! <gasps> Here we go, boys! <laughs> Straight into the fire. Yeah. 
Records 24 minutes is set by Budimir Sobat in Sisak in Croatia, uh, 27th of March 2021. Wow. Beat the previous record by 34 minutes. The reason he did oh, it. Oh, slow down. 34, 34 seconds. seconds. Jeez. Sorry, right. sorry. Okay. Uh, nobody knows how long he can breathe out for. He's very much building up <laughs> to take the Dave Moore record off your hands in on that. Impossible, Bobat. <laughs> He, he did it. I think it's Budimir. So bad. But maybe if you I know just, him well. I, shortened it. I put the two of them together. <laughs> it's a portmanteau. Well, you, the level of respect that you and Bobat have. Uh, yeah, Budimir. He did it, by the way, in that city because it was an earthquake there in December oh. 2020. And he wanted to kind of draw attention to it. Okay. What I like about this, right? If you look up the Guinness Book of Records, it says record for world's longest breath hold. And in brackets, voluntary. <laughs> At, which would suggest that there is an involuntary record. And I'm wondering, how did they discover that? Like, they just get a letter from or an email from the CIA going, well, it's it's funny story. Funny story. <laughs> we were waterboarding this Taliban lad and we got completely distracted by the radio. And Bye Bye Mess American Pie was on, or Bohemian Rhapsody, one of the long ones. And it turns out anyway that the record for involuntary hold is 12 minutes or something like this. You did ask me 24 minutes. It's much less in certain circumstances. But for this one, they were allowed, and they are allowed, hyperventilate with pure oxygen for, uh, I think it's up to 30 minutes before the attempt starts. Beforehand, okay. Yeah. So, so that's so, how you're allowed to do it. Right, so they wouldn't be in a normal state where if you and I, you know, right, even by practicing deep breathing or whatever, could just go, okay, here we go. And then hold our breath. Yeah. Like, these guys are in a, a heightened state of yeah, breathiness. It's... Much, it's <laughs> Well, they're not Dusty Springfield. <laughs> a heightened state of breathiness. Um, yes, they are. I mean, okay. it's. I, I wouldn't say cheat because everybody's competing under the same conditions, but they're using an age, I would say, yes, right? Yes, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Now, I want to move away from that, but stay roughly in, in the area of lungs. I don't know if you ever, I've told you this story. A couple of years ago, I did a show about, the, a live show about doing the meals and wheels with my dad. Yes, la- I remember On, on his well. last day, right? Beautiful show. And this was this was a genuine thing. So just before I was about to go into one of the houses um, of an older person, my dad said, don't go into that house because the man inside has, and he named a communicable disease. And oh. I used to ask the audience this. I used to say, my, what would my father say? Don't go into that house. The man inside has. And the audience used to panic. Like one young lad went, uh, dyslexia. And I was like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you can't catch dyslexia from somebody. Uh, one other fella, because if you go to an audience immediately, they, they kind yeah. of get caught in their... The headlamp, shall we say. Yeah. And I said, don't go into the house. The man inside has a communicable disease. What did my dad say? Don't go into the house. The man inside has. And the guy went, chlamydia. And I was like, <laughs> what do you think I was going to do to that elderly man? For you know, I do have the meals and wheels here, but, but, but daddy's going to need a little something in return. <laughs> or meals and wheels is just merely a front for uh, <laughs> a tremendously different industry. Yes, a, a different industry. Exactly. The answer, though, was tuberculosis. Oh. Uh, the, the older man had had tuberculosis. Yeah. Now, it's quite common, obviously, in the developing world, but the treatments are so much better now. But every so often it throws up um, an unusual, unusual right in a journal, shall we say. Okay. This is from the British Journal of General Medicine. And it's in 2014, right? So it says, imaging taken last autumn in the hospital I worked in revealed startling images. Multiple round ring shadows overlapping each other were clearly visible in the apices of both lung fields in the chest radiograph of a patient who had just been newly admitted, right? The junior doctors involved in the immediate care of the patient requested an urgent report on the x-ray, which confirmed that the patient had been the recipient of plumage. What? Plumage. <laughs> yeah, this is, wait for this. This is a form of surgical therapy used for the treatment of TB before the 1950s, prior to the use of anti-TB drugs, okay. right? So the opacities in this case were... Ping pong balls. Shut up. Ping pong balls in your chest cavity. Yeah. It does sound like something went wrong with a specialist Bangkok show, but. <laughs> <laughs> One of the services offered by Meals on Wheels, I'll have you know. <laughs> no, no. Know. For, for a fee, she will fire them straight in, with top spin, which is very impressive, straight on, into your on, chest cavity. So it, not in the lungs, but in the in between the sternum, the ribs, and, and the lungs, in the they general- inserted ping pong yeah. balls what was the logic the, um it was a new olympic sport no the <laughs> logic was it was a form of this thing called collapse therapy right and the idea was that you put a foreign material in 
uh, into your chest cavity. It collapses a part of your lung. The lung can rest. Uh, it cuts the oxygen to the TB bacterium and you will will, will recover. So okay. they, they use ping pong balls in this time. The first form of collapse therapy was performed by Mr. Hippocratic Oath himself, Hippocrates, apparently two and a half thousand years ago, 2,400 years ago. Right. When he inserted a pig's bladder into a patient's chest and inflated it. Well, How do you sell that one, Dave? <laughs> well, at least there's some form of, you know, mammalian uh, synchronicity. Whereas, you know what they're going to do? Uh, we've moved on from Hippocrates. That was 2,400 years ago. Now it's the 1940s. So we're going to lash a load of ping pong balls that I've just gotten off the Irish ping pong team. And we're going to stick them <laughs> in your chest cavity and see how we go. What? That's incredible. Yeah, but uh, that was amongst a number of things inserted into chest cavities as part of collapse therapy. So, uh, and I quote, because this is this uh, proper medical journal, mm. Horowitz et al. writes that the average time for complications to occur was 37 years after the therapy. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. So not only really are they inserted, but they don't take them out immediately. No, they don't, no, they don't but, take but, them out. But, but, but the idea is that they collapse <laughs> your lung. Should yeah. they not then uncollapse it at some point? <laughs> Well, they they used all sorts of stuff. So, like, they used ping pong balls. They used lucite spheres. So that's basically plexiglass. Yeah. Um. Uh. And and you could get this, and then thirty seven, forty years later, you could Head present off, to a hospital. It, it, a lot of the time, because whatever has been put into you moves, that's migrates, goes that's through a pain. fistula or something like that. Another case involved a patient who underwent plumage using paraffin wax masses and started coughing up large quantities of wax almost 28 years later. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if you smoked? You'd look like a, like a dragon. I've got a bit chesty today. Paraffin wax comes out of your chest. <laughs> that is phenomenal stuff. Like, like mm. the fact that this was a success, that these people were living 28, 37, 40 years later, going... Oh, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, they just lashed a lot of ping pong balls into my chest. I'm, I'm feeling a bit wrecked now. It's 40 years later. <laughs> Drawing crayons, silk, lead bullets. All of these were used to do this. This is incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I've got one final question for you. Yeah. In the world of breath. Name a sport played on land where you have to hold your breath to compete. That so, was a long exhale. Wow, I can, I can see what hey, you're doing there. I wasn't even warmed up. Um, you must be extremely impressive at sighing. Oh, um, you ask my wife, she will tell you that no <laughs> no one can offer disdain like I can with an exhalation. Uh, uh, what about diving? Uh, like um, high, high diving? Ah, no, that still involves water, doesn't it? Oh, Solely God. on land. The answer is kabaddi. Have you ever heard of kabaddi? No. Kabaddi is this, it's really big. It's it's in, in India, Bangladesh, that part of the world, right? So the idea is generally, there's lots of variations regionally. Generally, two teams of seven, you've got defenders and you've got raiders. One raider goes into the yes. defenders. Okay, I didn't know what it was called. Okay, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side of, side of the court, okay. His idea is to tag one of them or multiple, more than one of them, and then get back to his own court, right? But he has to do it on one breath. And how do you test if somebody is doing it on one breath, yeah. he has to chant. So he goes, kabaddi, 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 and tries to tag them, and they have to try and grab him and pin him to the ground and make him breathe again. It's really interesting if you if you know what's going on if you watch episodes Phenomenal. of it. Episodes of games. So, so his chanting of kabaddi is yeah. proof that he, so he's not going, kabaddi, kabaddi, kabaddi. So <laughs> yeah. then he'd just be like disqualified. So yeah. it's I think, I think given that it's an exhale, I think we've just found your sport. Well, there's a lot of running involved, which I'm not a fan of. But look, yeah, no, I could give this a go. This could be me. Okay, let, let me rephrase that. You don't have the mentality, the hand-eye coordination, the physical capacity, but the lungs. Oh, I mean... I'm, uh, I'm up at the top 1% lung-wise. Second to none. In terms of pulmonary ability, I mean, you're very well, high up there. You may scoff. You may scoff, Neil. And, and, and I think this is important to know. Before we move on, you've mentioned the Guinness Book of World Records a number of times. Yes. Do you know, Neil Delamere, that you are talking to a Guinness World Record holder? And not only am I a world record holder, but I'm a world record holder in relation to exhaling. Really? This is not a joke. Sorry. If I had a Guinness Book of World Records, I would 
it would be what I would say hello with I, if I had a world record. Do you know what? If, uh, We're if 20 I... minutes into this and you haven't said uh, 2011, Guinness okay. Book of World Records. Yeah. My face. Really? I and it's a, not, it's not going to be something stupid like fitting hedgehogs into a kitchen Picasso or something. It's genuinely. It's, it's pretty stupid, but it is, it is blowing out. Okay. Go on. Yeah. I held, now I say held because I believe, now I've never, I haven't checked this, which again, you probably would think it's crazy. I heard on the grapevine that someone else has beaten my record since, but I've actually never checked it. But in 2010, so therefore for the 2011 Guinness Book of World Records, yeah, uh, I held, at some point, held the record, and I have the, the thing on my wall to prove it. I blew a Malteser with a straw... The furthest across a shopping center floor. <laughs> no, it's oh, that's so specific. It is pretty specific, Neil. I'll be honest with you. It's pretty, but it required How me. How far? It was an impressive twenty-four feet and a bit. I think I have the I have the thing somewhere in the house. I'll get it. Get that because I. I started unimpressed there, but 24 feet is actually quite impressive. So <laughs> yeah. I want to see the certificate. Get it for part three. Deal. And I, I will be duly impressed. Okay. Uh, but uh, we better do part two now. So we will be talking to Melissa Alardo about the Badjo people. Not the Bad Jokes people, as Dave suspected <laughs> earlier on. The Badjo people and a possible genetic adaptation to allow them to go in the water for longer. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That's in part two. Right, we are joined now by Melissa Alardo, the adjunct professor at the University of Utah. And she's going to tell us more about the adaptation of the human body to free diving. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get into your specific research, um, basically this show is about me bringing something interesting to Dave. And that's why we're going to talk to you because you are the person who is much more uh, qualified than 
well, I don't know how you describe us, Dave. Dilettantes, ignorant um, amateurs. But before amateurs, we get into, definitely the word amateurs, amateur, yeah. Amateurs. Before we get into what you did specifically, you might tell us about something that I came across in the research for this called the mammalian dive response. What happens to our bodies, the human body, when we dive? Yeah, so when you dive, or also if you just hold your breath and immerse your face in cold water, um, either way it triggers the same response, which is you have bradycardia, which is the slowing of the heart rate. Um, you have something called peripheral vasoconstriction. So the blood vessels in your extremities, like your fingers and toes, get smaller. And then you have splenic contraction. So your spleen contracts. And when it does that, it pushes um, this stored reservoir of, um, of oxygenated red blood cells into circulation, giving you an oxygen boost. So your body has a store of oxygen to help you out in that exact situation. That's right. Yeah. So the spleen is like this, you know, kind of, I've heard it described as a biological scuba tank. So you're getting this little boost from that. And then the other two responses are just acting to kind of slow, lower your oxygen consumption and keep oxygen where it's needed the most. Because, you know, your fingers and toes don't really need it while you're diving, but your heart and your brain and your lungs really need that oxygen for the whole duration of the dive. You studied the genetics of the, of, of the Bajo people, right? If I'm pronouncing right. that correctly. Mm-hmm. Who are the Bajo? So the Bajo are a group of, um, they're called sea nomads, sometimes they're called sea gypsies. Um, And this just refers to the fact that for thousands of years, um, they lived as marine hunter-gatherers, getting everything they needed from the sea. And they did this by living on houseboats um, and spending very little time on land, spending most of their time on water. And so they would do this through a combination of fishing from the surface of the water, but also through breathful diving, um, which is how I got interested in them. Um, but the Bajo are one of these sea nomad groups, and they're living in Indonesia and in Malaysia and the Philippines. Is their life only possible in these kind of warmer water areas? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the tropical environment, especially in Southeast Asia, is just so rich in terms of providing food and providing other things that they need to survive. Um, that's the only place that I'm aware of where you have marine hunter-gatherers like this. You have a lot of similar populations throughout the world who are existing in a very similar nomadic way. Um, living off the land and off of, you know, animals that are on land. But as far as I know, these are the only ones doing it from the sea. Um, But they are spread all the way throughout Southeast Asia. And it's actually thought that maybe some of the first settlers of Madagascar were Indonesian Bajo who made it all the way over there. Oh, wow. What did your research uncover? I was actually diving in Thailand, but a different kind of scuba diving in Thailand for a research project looking at coral genetics. Um, And that was when I heard about them and just thought it was so fascinating because I've always been interested in evolution. And here you have kind of a perfect case study for evolution because they've had this really strong selective pressure. Um, And so, you know, for for evolution to act, you need some kind of um, physiology for it to act on. And so I started looking into, like you said, the mammalian dive reflex. And the one part of that that really caught my attention was this contraction of the spleen. Um, because I haven't, I mean, you know, certainly when I think about diving, the spleen isn't the first organ that I thought about. You can live without a spleen, you know, like how important could it really be? Um, and so it turns out that in certain species of diving seals, they have these massive spleens that take up like half of their abdominal cavity, just huge. Um, and it stores this enormous amount of oxygenated red blood and it's thought to help them with their diving. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, that's something that we can measure, something that may have been affected in humans in the same way that it was in seals. And so that was what I started looking at in the Bajo. So what did you do? Did you say to these p- people, listen, I want to scan your spleen to see how big your spleen is? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I um, I actually showed up during Ramadan um, and I was introduced through people who lived in the area and worked, you know, at the university. And it was just a community of people who, who took me to the village, ended up being like 10 o'clock at night because we had to go after the last prayer of the day. Um, so I'm showing up to the house of the chief of the village and his wife, just totally unannounced. And and actually, as we were talking to them, so I was with a translator. I eventually, I learned Indonesian, but on my first trip, it was helpful to have someone there who who could speak the technical side of things. So we're talking to the chief and he's explaining the research and who I am and, you know, that this first visit is just to get to know them. And his wife, the chief's wife, just walks away. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I offended her. This is horrible. And it turns out she was walking away to prepare bedrooms for us to stay with them. Um, And she just came back and was like, well, of course you can stay with us. Let me cook you dinner. (laughs) Um, Well, because I I would imagine that uh, a tribe like the Bajau don't have a huge amount of contact with first world western civilization for example and you often hear that those initial discussions can be for for anyone researching any uh, you know remote tribe they can be quite difficult and the remote tribe has no concept of why studying them would be of any interest to anyone else other than you must want to get something from them or gain an advantage or whatever because 
you know, they just they don't exist in the same world that we do, really. So I just can't imagine you walking up to the Basha going, hey, can you just translate to these guys that I'm here and I want to measure their spleens? And they're just going to go, get the <laughs> yeah. bitch out of here now. They, they were very curious and confused in terms of, you know, really surprised that I would want to research them. But it wasn't so much, um, you know, like a cynical, skeptical confusion. It was more like they were amused by it. They thought mm. it was really wonderful and they were really excited. Um, but I thought it was, you know, as you mentioned, especially with the, this community is actually fairly close to the mainland. So they have a lot more, a lot of them go to school on the mainland. They have a lot more interaction than some of the more really remote communities. Um, but still, you know, I mean, a big part of the research is something called informed consent. And if you're talking about genetics and saying we're taking your DNA, well, if someone doesn't know what DNA is, it's really hard for them to be informed about that. So that was a big part of the first visit that I did was just to kind of like host these little small meetings or kind of almost lectures, you know, to try to really make sure that they understood what it was that I was interested in and why I was having them spit into a tube. <laughs> so is it fair to say, so step one is you go, okay, there's larger spleens in other mammals who dive. You go to the Bajo and go, can I scan your spleens? It's just, it's a physical exam. So what did you discover? Yeah, so we found that their spleens were, in fact, we compared them to a nearby population, so a population living about 20 kilometers away, very similar lifestyle, similar environmental exposures, and we measured their spleens as well. And um, and we found that the Bajo had spleens that were about 50% larger. So it was this really dramatic, I mean, as soon as I plotted them for the first time, it was really like a, holy cow, this is, <laughs> this is pretty amazing. Um, so they did, in fact, have larger spleens. Um, but then one of the questions is, is this just because they're diving all the time or is, is there something actually genetic underlying that? And so that's why it's important when we did, for every person whose spleen we scanned, we also collected DNA. And so we were able to connect it to a genetic um, signature. And were the people who live 20 kilometers away that you used as a kind of a, a comparison, were they a sea people or, or, a, or a land people? Yeah, they're land people. So they um, have existed historically as farmers. Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, you go to the Bajo village and the children are just in the water from, you know, the moment they can be. And they, uh, they a lot of times actually say in the old days, um, Bajo children will learn how to swim before they learn how to walk because they spent wow. so little time on land. I mean, you could just see everyone is in the water. But when you go to this other village, most of the, I, I went swimming with some of the kids from that village and they, they don't know how to swim. I mean, you stay like in the shallow water. They're living right next to the sea, but interacting with it very little. So they're kind of a perfect comparison because they're eating a lot of the same foods. Um, they're living in the same temperatures, drinking the same water, um, but their lifestyle is completely different and has been for thousands of years. And presumably, if you look at somebody from the Badger community and they don't free dive and their liver, or sorry, their spleen is still 50% bigger. So that was an Irish thing. Oh, God, I'd love a 50% bigger liver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then you can go, hold on, actually, this isn't from your lifestyle during your life. There might be a genetic cause to this. And exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what we did. We also, we took spleen measurements from Bajo people who were diving, but also from Bajo people who weren't diving. Um, in, you know, it's hard to, like I said, the children are in the water all the time. So are they technically all divers? But, you know, you have a pretty clear split. Um, and that's because, you know, as they've moved closer to mainland populations, they've kind of moved away from this um, nomadic lifestyle and a lot fewer of them are diving. So you have some people who haven't ever been diving, really. Um, and so we were able to actually split the Bajo into divers and non-divers and see that it didn't matter whether you're diving or not. You had a larger spleen, which points to, like you're saying, a genetic um, underpinning. And can you, for, for me, certainly, uh, and for everyone who's listening, can you give an indication of... What's involved when a Bajau person does dive? You know, what, can you describe what you're seeing when you're in the water with them? And can they do things that, irrespective of equipment and, you know, ability, that they can do things that you just simply can't do? Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing that I found really interesting was we were kind of, you know, before, when I actually went to take the measurements, I brought a colleague out with me. And he and I were discussing, okay, well, how are we going to define a diver? You know, and we said, okay, they have to dive at least you know, four or five times a week, they have to have been diving for at least this many years, we had all these criteria. And then there wasn't a single person who fell anywhere in between diver and non diver. It really was like the people who were diving were diving almost every day, and they'd have been diving almost every day of their whole lives. Um, so it is pretty amazing The divers are, are really di including we had an 83 year old man, I believe, who whose last dive had been that morning. Um, so <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, but when they're in the water, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I haven't really been around competition divers, so you know, it's hard to necessarily compare. But I mean, just the the way they dive, the way they control their buoyancy, they're very functional divers. So I was diving with one diver, and we were spearing fish. And he looked down and he happened to see a giant clam and he just dropped like he was gone. And uh, and he went and grabbed the clam. I mean, he must have gone, you know, 50 feet deeper than where we were. And he comes back up with a clam. Yeah, just just, you know, hadn't necessarily been prepared to dive that deep, just saw it and thought, oh, I want that. And and he was down there. Was, how, how is he sinking himself? I mean, obviously this is this is their ability. This is the, what they're doing all the time. But how right. do you sink yourself fifty feet in water? You know, voluntarily. See, when people dive a lot, they have much more ability to control their buoyancy, and they use they use less weights. And and I don't really know the physiology behind how it is people are controlling their buoyancy. But I mean, you see it with the bajo. Even when they're at the surface of the water, they don't dive head first. They just drop feet first. Drop, you know, they're nice. oriented with their head up and they just drop. And and I personally can't do that. And I don't know how they do it, but it is remarkable to see. Is it true that some um, deliberately burst the eardrums? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are a lot of them who are hard of hearing. Uh, that's because in, in their youth, um, you know, it's a lot easier to burst your eardrums than it is to, to have to equalize every, you know, five to 10 feet for the rest of your life, every time you dive. Um, so yeah, you hear a lot of stories and you meet a lot of them who speak really loudly. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with the bursting of the eardrums. I should just explain equalize because yeah. I've, I've done free diving. Now it wasn't in Indonesia. It was in a quarry in Tipperary, Dave. And uh, wow. I, was, I was as good as, as you would expect. But one <laughs> of the things I found difficult was to try and equalize the pressure in your nose and your ear cavity uh, as you go down. Now, and that was one thing that was very difficult. And that's obviously what, why they do uh, that. Okay. So, so bursting the eardrum just means then that this isn't, is no longer an issue. Um, mm. how, do, right. how do you voluntarily burst your eardrum? You just dive without equalizing. So, you know, equalizing relieves, you kind of are able to open this valve in your ears that um, relieves the pressure buildup as, you, as you're dropping because there's a small air pocket that's becoming under pressure. You can hold your nose and blow and, you know, you can feel this little pop in your ears. Same thing happen, happens when you go up in an airplane or something like that. Sure. That's equalizing. And if you don't do that, the pressure builds up so much that the eardrum will just rupture. And then because wow. it's ruptured, you never have that that air pocket in there again, depending on how it heals. So if we look at your research in terms of, you know, you, you, you scan the divers, you see, uh, you know, with your ultrasound that they've got 50 percent bigger spleens. As you're uh, examining them, you look at their genetics. So what did that uncover? What did you see in terms of, well, this gene controls this and that thing might be the thing that controls the spleen yeah so you know it's never really obvious in genetics um, a lot of times we do these things called natural selection scans so you're looking across the genome to try to find what places um, what genes have been under natural selection and it's easy to tell a story based on what a gene does um, but in this case and in many cases it it's really sometimes you, it's a puzzle that you have to put together so we found a gene called pde10a um, which is a phosphodiesterase and this particular gene actually affects thyroid hormone levels. And it stood out to us because not only has it been under selection, so something in the history of the Bajo has caused evolution to act on this gene, um, but also it's, it's called association. So it's associated with spleen size. So if you have a particular version of this gene, you have a larger spleen. So we've got evolution has acted on it. It's making the spleen bigger. Um, but it turns out this gene affects thyroid hormones. And so we were a little bit confused about how thyroid hormones would be affecting spleen size. But if you look into mouse literature and also into some literature in humans, um, it seems that when you increase thyroid hormone levels, it has an effect of increasing spleen size. And um, what we think is that what's happening in the Bajo isn't that they're, you know, hyperthyroid. So it's not at a pathological level that their thyroid hormones are increased, but it's just enough um, to increase the size of their spleen to the point where it's beneficial. Is there a chance then that there may be something that we can take from what your research and apply it medically to everybody else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are a lot of cases in which you want to have an oxygen boost. So there are a lot of times when, um, you know, like sleep apnea, people suddenly just stop breathing. Um, there are a lot of critical care conditions where people suddenly stop breathing. And if there were a way to turn this into something that you could turn on in people, it could absolutely be beneficial medically. Wow. 
So is there a lifestyle under threat now the way a lot of people would assume it would be like a, like a lot of minority groups in the world are we are all being forced into this kind of homogenous way of living is 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 their lifestyle under threat yeah absolutely so i mentioned before that we looked at bajo divers and bajo non-divers um mm. i would say maybe 50 100 years ago that wouldn't have been possible because if you were bajo you were diving um there were no bajo non-divers so, I mean, just even the fact that in the village where we collected the samples, there were about 50% of the Bajo were not diving. I mean, that alone shows you that their lifestyle is changing. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that this is happening. Um, in a lot of the countries where the sea nomads are living, it's really hard to say that they're part of a country when they're so nomadic. So are they Thai? Are they Indonesian? Are they, you know, what, where do they belong? Um, and so that's something that's caused a lot of them to, to settle down in one place. Um, which is, you know, kind of contrary to their traditional lifestyle. There's also, you know, overfishing has made it a lot harder for them to survive the way they did traditionally, um, because it's suddenly they can't feed their families um, based on what they're getting out of the water, because it's, it's just not as um, abundant as it used to be. And nomadic people, I'm, I'm thinking of, in Ireland, we have the Irish uh, travelers, we have experience of Roma gypsies across Europe. There are societal groups that can be marginalized at times. Um, would the same be true of the Bajau in their larger communities? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I first started looking into the sea nomads, I, I spoke with um, a researcher, Cynthia Chow, who's fantastic. And she's worked with these groups a lot. And she was actually in Copenhagen where I was doing my PhD when I first started this research. And, um, and when I first spoke to her, she said, you need to learn Indonesian. Um, and I was like, well, I'm sure I can find a translator. And she said, no, you really, you want to learn Indonesian because chances are you won't find someone who will want to go to village with you. Um, and that's been the case with many of these communities that I've interacted with. Um, people, people have all these, I mean, there's, there are a lot of ideas about, you know, oh, they're, they have magical powers. I was told, you know, they're thieves they're, you know, people say a lot of things that are just completely untrue. But it's, you know, they're marginalized, they're, they're isolated physically, they're isolated a lot of times in terms of religion, um, because they're a lot of times late converts to whatever the local religion is. Um, even, you know, they're isolated in terms of their nationality, because some of them, it's harder for them to get um, citizenship in the countries where they're living. So they're extremely marginalized. Um, people say a lot of horrible things about them. Um, and then so it was just it was really remarkable to actually go and, and spend time with them and see. I mean, they're just the most generous and kind, wonderful people I've ever met. It's the usual thing that people fear what they don't understand. Do we know anything about other genes that affect diving? Yeah. So there's a gene um, called BDKRB2, which is the only other gene that's been shown to be associated with the human dive response. Um, and so I mentioned before, one of the things that happens when you dive is that your, your blood vessels get smaller um, to keep the blood closer to the organs that need it. And so this gene seems to affect that um, component of the dive response. Um, and that was actually shown in a Russian population. Um, and that's the gene, one of the genes that came up as having experienced the strongest natural selection. So evolution has acted most strongly on this gene in the Bajo. Um, so, you know, Sometimes people ask, well, do you really think that the spleen could make them able to dive for 13 minutes? I don't think it's just the spleen. I think there are a lot of genes that have contributed to this, and that's definitely one of them. Can you train your spleen? Well, there's conflicting evidence on this. Um, so as I mentioned, the Bajo who dive and don't dive have the same size spleen. Um, so that would seem to indicate that you can't train your, train your spleen um, or that the genetic component is so powerful that it overrides any signal of training. Um, some other studies have shown that if you take people who haven't been diving and train them either in just breath holding or in diving, that their spleen gets larger. Um, and those have been some smaller and more recent studies that seem compelling. Um, but I think, you know, jury's still out on that one. Yeah, it would seem like that if you were to take the free diving community, and I know we have um, a very famous free diver here called Claire Walsh, who's an Irish free diver who's recently competed in the World Free Diving Championships and stuff. Um, but surely a free diver, if you studied that community, I mean, obviously they're not a they're not a population. You know, there's there's they don't necessarily live in the same place or you know live the same lifestyles. But you would imagine that the body over time, if it's constantly exposed to this breath holding and free diving and the mammalian dive response that it would you know it would make sense for it to grow the spleen if it's constantly saying to itself well i i might need this or i do need this you know because every day or every second day 
my body is going 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet down into the water. Right. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is I have seen some studies that have measured in a very small number of competitive freedivers spleen size. Um, and there was one study that suggested a correlation between how well they did in a performance and how big their spleen was. Um, I haven't seen any that look at like how often they train and how big their spleen is. Um, although I think that would be really interesting to see. But the one problem is you don't know how often maybe people who have big spleens are naturally really good at free diving. And so they get into it. So maybe that completely mm. wipes out any signal that you would expect to see. Um, yeah. but, but it's a really good question. Yeah. I, you, I mean, you would imagine that something has to change if you're diving that often. And are you intending to go back to Indonesia? Are you planning on studying the Baijiu uh, in any other way, shape or form, or even just to visit the people who you made friends with there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I get actually just got a message uh, from the chief and his wife saying, when are you coming back to Indonesia? I mean, they're like family to me. So, you know, as soon as I can, I will definitely go back. In terms of the research, um, we definitely like to know, you know, when we see this other gene being under under selection, there are ways of actually measuring the amount of peripheral vasoconstriction through these simulated dives. So I actually did this um, in another setting where we have people hold their breath and put their face in water. And like you said, you see the heart rate drop immediately, but you also see this huge increase in blood pressure, which is the, you know, the blood vessels are getting smaller. And so therefore the blood pressure is increasing. Um, so if we could measure that in the module, we might be able to show not only that this gene has been under selection, but that it's actually having a measurable physical effect. Melissa, you've, not only is your research amazing, you have been an amazing spokesperson for it. And this show is called, Why Would You Tell Me That? And Dave, I mean, I think Melissa has just smashed it out of the park. I, my mind is is growing like my spleen if I dived. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Melissa, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? And um, God, Melissa, how good was that? An amazing subject and a brilliant spokesperson for it, as I said. What listeners don't know is uh, after we said goodbye to Melissa, you ran off like an excited (laughs) child. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Before we get to part three. Yeah, because look, I think there's a chance that maybe you think, you know, that I'm I'm a good storyteller and I might be spinning a yarn here and saying, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, in 2010 or I I held the world record. Okay, so what I've got here now, Neil, you obviously listeners, you guys can't see this, but Neil can. There is an official Guinness World Records certificate. Oh my God! See it's that, actually right? f- it's framed. It's framed. It hangs proudly on my wall on my stairs. I'll read it out to you. Okay. It says the furthest distance blowing a Malteser with a straw is seven point three six meters, twenty four feet and two inches, achieved by David Moore Ireland at St Stephen's Green Shopping Centre, Dublin, Ireland. On the, sorry, I was wrong. Sixteenth of September, two thousand and eight. Wow. I mean, Achieved is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, isn't it? Achieved. You see, then what I've also got with me, Neil can also see, is the 2010 Guinness Book of World Records. And very early on the book, in fact, it's page 11, I think. Again, Neil can see this. Can you see me there with my Malteser and my straw? I can. I can. And... I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. To me, Record Breakers was, yeah, wasn't it Roy Castle Roy when Castle, we were yeah. growing up on BBC? Yeah. And it was it was something that was a genuine sort of an achievement to get into. It was for the strongest and the yeah, fastest. Yeah, like lifting and the, a mini over your head yeah, or yeah. Yeah, balancing Where, chairs on your chin. Yeah, whereas, you know, and, and you... I mean, I think besmirch is quite a strong word for what you've done, <laughs> but that's how I feel. I'm simultaneously proud of you yeah. while while being largely disgusted by the Guinness World Book of Records well, franchise. Here's the, thing, here's the thing, you know, I can claim mm. that I am a Guinness World Record holder, have been. Mm. As I said, there, there may have been someone who's been. I have this. This hangs yeah. on my wall. You yeah. don't. So I you don't. Can, you can claim that I besmirch the good yeah. name of the world. It's jealousy. Like. But it's until envy. you have that, you know, mm. framed Ikea Perspex cheap frame <laughs> on your wall with the Guinness cert in it, you know, hush. Do you know something? You would be better off taking the Perspex out of that. Perspex, it's another name for Lucite. Making it into little spheres <laughs> and putting it into your chest cavity to collapse your own lung <laughs> if you ever get TV. Probably true. 
What a great way to end this podcast. <laughs> uh, it's Dave's turn to present something amazing uh, next time to me. If you want us to cover something, you can get in touch with us. Um, we're both on Instagram and on, um, uh, on various socials. And we also have at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram as well. As a central repository for requests. No matter how bizarre, let us know. Before we go, can mm. I encourage you to use this platform to plug the fact that you have a tour uh, where yes. you don't talk about plumage and lucite and <laughs> yeah. spleen size. Well, maybe you do. Uh, but it's an actual real-life stand-up comedy tour, uh, which people need to know about. All around uh, the country uh, and, and a couple of dates in the UK as well. So neildelimer.com slash gigs. And Dave's Dermot and Dave on Today FM. Uh, give that a plug as well. I don't have to plug that. That's nonsense. Don't mind that. People are far more interested in going out and having a good night than listening to us talking nonsense on the radio. <laughs> well, this is true. Yeah, this they've is got true. us talking nonsense on podcast, Neil. So you know they don't need more of it. Yes, and the trouble is, you your exhalations are so impressive that you can talk more nonsense than your oh average God. person. This is the, this is the format because in, on radio, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm 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 bound by time constraints, uh, bosses. Uh, yeah. a commitment to a certain amount of music per hour, a certain amount of mm. commercial time, a certain amount of news, current affairs. I, I can, this is a podcast. There are no rules. So we're going to say goodbye. And then I'm going to exhale for as long <laughs> as I can on this podcast. And you're all going to decide whether I am just a normal exhaler or some kind of superhuman. There's a part of me that really wanted to be beside you at school. Do you know when in a biro you take out the middle bit of the biro and you can use it as a blowpipe? I reckon you could have hit somebody in an opposing school. Like you're in, you're in someone in town and hit somebody in the next county over. Yeah. Okay. Why, why, all, right. all right. So, uh, okay. so goodbye. We'll, we'll Thank see you, you next time. Listening. See you next time. You ready? Uh, I'll give go. you a count in. Okay. One, two, three, go. Worst podcast ever. <laughs> I, really, I really hope there's some one person that ASMR thing is just has his hand down his trousers going, This is the best podcast ever. See you later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.